I'm glad you did that because I'm about to make a comment. <laughs> <laughs> we got a moment. We got a moment here. <laughs> Welcome to the 457 SEO, a place for stories, information, and observations about Southeastern Ohio, presented by WOUB News. I'm Allison Hunter. I'm Aaron Payne. I'm Susan Tevin. And I'm Atish Baidya. And now we're here. The Electoral College is poised to solidify the election of Donald John Trump as the 45th president of the United States. There are people trying to fight that move because Hillary Clinton actually won the popular vote. And we now understand that nearly 50% of the registered voters in this country did not vote. Uh, but where they did vote here in Ohio, uh, we don't have the official official numbers, but somewhere close to about 70%, somewhere along those lines, it kind of stands to reason because at least 5 million votes were cast in the, uh, the presidential side. 2.7 went to Trump. 2.3 went to Hillary, and yeah, so now we're here. So election night, we all worked. Some of us got the chance to talk with voters, attend protests. Here's where we turn the mics over, Aaron and Susan. One of the first questions that I kept hearing in the newsroom on election night as the results started to come in was, how were the polls so wrong? And it's debatable how incorrect the polls were or were not, but still a lot of people didn't see this quite coming in the manner that it did. Um, there have been a lot of ideas tossed out, but I wanted to get at what Trump supporters thought about the polls and their correctness or incorrectness. So I called uh, Athens County resident Rebecca Keller, who we talked to in the last episode which you can listen to at WOUB.org by, by searching 457SEO. That's a little plug for you. Plug, plug. plug. <laughs> and her explanation was pollsters were biased against Trump and his supporters. We're not stupid. We saw that. And we didn't know why that was. And when you're going to come against us for no good reason and that you're going to lie about us, then we really are going to stand up against that. Trump supporters felt pollsters already had an idea of what a Trump supporter was in their mind. And it was a stereotype and they didn't agree with that stereotype. And they stopped responding to polls, which will affect the polls. So as you can imagine, Keller, she's excited that her candidate won but wants to make a point that America should embrace the president-elect as he transitions from the campaign to leading. Now he doesn't have to be bogged down in trying to sell his point. He can truly say, look, I am here for all of you. You know, our agenda is not against anyone. I think it boils, boils down to kind of what we talked about before uh, as far as the individuals that have felt disenfranchised by the president-elect and his rhetoric, those communities are not present to some of the individuals that have supported Trump, mostly in the red counties that showed up on Ohio's map. And if they're not paying attention to those, if they don't have those communities People. in their community, then they're not going to really pay attention to the needs of that community. But I've actually mm. heard that um, said in the news um, nationally 
whether you voted because you supported Trump or you didn't support Hillary, when you support Trump, the argument has been made that even if you're not racist or sexist or um, xenophobic, that almost shows that you don't care about those issues in some people's argument by voting for this person that has said, yes, I believe in these things. Others in Athens have expressed sadness and fear and anger about uh, Trump's election. Uh, Melissa Wales is the director of the United Campus Ministries, and she said the negative rhetoric, either spoken by President-elect Trump or even inspired by his uh, rhetoric, has affected many different circles uh, of people in the area. There's something for everyone, I think, to be outraged about, you know, the, cur- the current climate, issues around globalization and economic disparity that a lot of people um, have been experiencing for a long time, but also, you know, the racism and sexism and everything else. And I think this is just a really interesting time where all of these, all of these issues are kind of front and center, right? Okay. Wales said people are being led to act because of all that outrage, uh, including the creation of a new branch of Show Up for Racial Justice, which is helping white people join with minorities and disenfranchised groups to fight racism. Focusing on white people as instrumental in, you know, dismantling racism in our own communities, but, you know, paying attention to the voices of marginalized, you know, communities and organizations and actions. You know, how are disenfranchised, marginalized groups, what are they experiencing, and how can we, you know, how can white people effectively, or people who are in um, positions of privilege around whatever identity, you know, aspect we're talking about, um, can ally with and support those organizations and those actions. But we're seeing a lot of protests happening already, even though that group hasn't quite uh, joined together yet including Lauren Marsan and Jolena Hansbarger. Uh, They're a lesbian couple who decided to get married as a way to protest what they see as a threat to their rights. This is our way to, like, start the fight. This is our way to make our voices heard and say we're not going away, we're not lying down. We're, We're part of this group that you cannot ignore. Do what you can do what you can and then hopefully it'll help all the other fights too. There were some people after the election that could be found on the courthouse steps in Athens County with protest signs denouncing the election and on November 13th hundreds took to the streets in Athens as part of a stop Trump rally. Many there identified as minority groups who felt threatened by the rhetoric either put forward by Trump or inspired by him. Tiffany Anderson represented the Multicultural Activist Coalition when speaking to the crowd before the march. She says while the future may be uncertain for historically disenfranchised groups, it is time to rally around one another. There is hope, and we will not go down without a fight. Your friends matter. You matter. And we all will continue to matter in this present day, the next four years, and for the rest of time after that. Others attending the rally were there to indict a two-party system that doesn't work for the common man. Tyler Barton with the International Socialist Organization, which was the group that organized the rally, says Trump's campaign slogan is inaccurate. For the countless millions of people who have lived under the brutality of American oppression, America has never been great. However, Trump supporters just have a more optimistic outlook for America's future, as summarized by Rebecca Keller. To me, that would be great if we start to love our country, have people being prosperous, if our cities are are thriving. I want the 
you know, African-American communities to, to really be helped. I want every child to get uh, education that's equal and fantastic. And I believe Mr. Trump's really going to do that. And that's how she feels. And we'll leave it there. But the idea is to get back to prosperity for all people in all communities, even though some of the rhetoric might have suggested otherwise. And I thought it was very interesting. Just a couple of nights ago, I was at a scrimmage at a local high school. I was sitting next to, he was an older gentleman who was a retired construction worker and now a bus driver for, he was on the opposing team, a team in South Ohio. And he asked if one of my kids was out there and I said, well, yeah, the black kid. <laughs> and he paused for a second. Like, I was like, well, maybe he can't see him. He's the big one. You know, he happens to be the tallest kid out there too. So anyhow, you know, when he, and we talked about um, education and the first thing he said was, there are no jobs out here. And he talked about his sons. He said, you know, my sons grew up here at three sons. And he said, and they all moved away. And one was in Texas, one was in Alabama, and one's in Canada. And they're all doing very well. The sons are in their 30s or so. So they moved away about 20 years ago. But again, the idea that um, this is not a place where a family can have a future kind of rang pretty loudly for for me as he was telling me the story and just as nice as he could be and we just had a regular old conversation and pleasant now I'll say this to look at him he was probably a Trump supporter the even the fact that he was talking about jobs maybe you know he might not have been I'm just going off of maybe a stereotype of what I think and what I know from around here where where he's from his county did go go red so we're all trying to figure it out And it's unfortunate that the conversation has been, or the rhetoric has been, and maybe even some of the appointments appear to be the disenfranchisement of some. For the benefit of others. Does it have to be that way? And coming up, we'll continue this conversation with Tom Suttis of Cleveland.com, who puts this win into perspective and what it means for Ohio. And he has to produce in ways that Ohioans can see as a really effective amelioration of their circumstances. Okay, we're back here and we're joined by Tom Suttis, PhD, journalist, editorial writer, columnist, all things political and legislative. I um, mean, we have access to this very busy man because he is also a professor here at Ohio University, and we want to thank you for your time today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so um, we've been talking about now we're here from the election and moving forward. And um, But first, because you cover the state and you've looked at the numbers and we've as we've talked, Ohio, so goes Ohio, so goes the, so goes the election and the presidency, and, and Hillary lost big. That's correct, she did, and uh, I think more than people would have expected. I, I, it's easy to say now that I, I had a feeling that she wasn't going to carry the state, but I really did think it would be pretty narrow. It turned out not to be. 
Okay. And so what have you found? You looked at some of the numbers. And, of course, in Athens County, um, she she won the county. Um, but in as so, close as Nelsonville, which was uh, the city was Democratic, and it flipped. It went, it went Trump. And um, so what does that tell you? And what have you looked at in terms of with Northeast Ohio and, and all of that? Um, in some respects, the story of the election is the fact that Mrs. Clinton did not turn out the kind of votes that uh, President Obama turned out both times in the state. Um, I was doing some checking the other day for other reasons, and I was looking at our 32 Appalachian counties, which include, for legislative reasons, Trumbull, Mahoning, and uh, Ashtabula in northeast Ohio. And um, if Mrs. Clinton had done as well as President Obama did in 2012 in those 32 counties, <clears throat> she would have um, gained 140,000 votes roughly. Now, Mr. Trump won by 450,000 approximately, but another way of putting that is that she probably would have covered close to a third of her deficit had she done just as well as the president did four years ago. And she did not, and that's, I think, part of what happened all over the state in some of the metropolitan counties. She did very well in Franklin County. But to me, it was very telling, especially given the very strong uh, political tradition in Montgomery County, African-American politicians like Ryan McClinn, mm -hmm. uh, her father, late father, C.J. McClinn, a magnificent figure in Ohio politics, that the... Uh, Republican candidate carried Montgomery County, which I thought was kind of remarkable, uh, given all the things we know about economic conditions around the state. Um, it's also the case that, again, understanding those three northeastern counties are considered Appalachian counties for economic reasons or political reasons, that if you count them as such, that uh, Ms. Clinton only carried Mahoning and, and Athens of all the uh, 32 Appalachian counties, which is also remarkable, although President Obama only carried those two or three um, a couple of years ago. There were times, though, when Bill Clinton himself um, carried as many as um, 20 of them. So something has been shifting in the wind in Ohio about the Democratic standing in many parts of the state, I think. And that's a part of what we're trying to get to also. Okay, so we know <laughs> the jobs are the thing, economics, that is going to be the driver, that feeling, especially in the Appalachian counties, um, the lack of jobs more than anything. Yes. And so that was one thing that uh, the Republican ticket, at least at the top of the ticket, and in locally, I mean, Jay Edwards spoke uh, clearly and, and, and um, directly about the idea of bringing jobs back. Now, what that means and what that really looks like um, is something that we all have to stay vigilant yeah. on, right? So, but what have you, have you talked with voters or you get a sense of what that kind of success would mean here, what, bringing jobs back to this area? What does that look like? That's a very good question. I have not in any regular way talked to voters because I've been doing opinion work and been so busy with other things that our reporters have been doing a very good job of analyzing them. But I am from Mahoney County originally. And so I know a little bit about the way that deindustrialization and job losses can really affect an entire people and their social uh, environment and their political environment and their economic outlook. Uh, the irony, not the irony, it's the wrong word. The, 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 the challenge in Athens County is that Athens County has, I think, something in the order of 30 percent of its employed people are working for government in one way or the other. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. We're talking about school boards. Uh, developmental disability boards, the university, uh, federal government agencies, post office, and so forth. Those tend to be fairly secure jobs, but the fact of the matter is the government is generally not expanding any place, at least of all in Ohio. So the opportunities have to come, if they are going to come, from the private sector. Uh, the other complication has been, as we all know from living in this part of Ohio, the story of southeastern, southern, and uh, eastern Ohio 
has been a resource extraction over the years, coal, oil and gas, timber, and so forth. And once those resources have been extracted, in some respects, the, uh, the, uh, the jobs move on with them. And that's another complicated problem. I don't know the answer to it. Um, clearly, transportation corridors and public works construction can make a big difference. But again, those are seasonal jobs, essentially. Um, I, think, um, I think it's a larger thing, though, than just jobs in this respect. You know, a couple of years ago, an author named Tom Frank wrote a book about, based on an old editorial from the 1890s about what's, what's, what's wrong with Kansas, about the way voting patterns had changed in Kansas, which had been democratic to some extent competitively. And he said that people did not vote in their own interests economically. But I have a little bit different take on that. I think that people's interests in their own minds aren't always economic. Like they're sometimes cultural. They're sometimes spiritual. Uh, they're sometimes intellectual. And I don't know that those things are as tangible, obviously, as jobs and income. But I think they play a role in the decisions people make about how they vote and who they support. And again, I don't know the answer to that, except that in some respects, um, combined with the loss of unionization and the loss of coal jobs, which many of which were unionized, the Democratic base in this part of the state has declined to a considerable extent. Um, the interesting thing is there's, there's some, such substantial environmental and human needs, you'd think that jobs that are predicated on environmental remediation or maybe human services would really be, uh, uh, be one way to go, but of course that assumes the willingness by government and government leaders to appropriate the funds to attend to those issues. Uh, certainly there'd be no lack of opportunity down here for those kinds of opportunities and jobs, but I'm not sure it was a will to do that in Columbus or Washington. Hmm. And actually, I talked to Jay Edwards about that, and he was talking about natural gas being one of the businesses and just generally about bringing businesses to this area and to the 94th District. What Have you seen the historical – what's the word I'm looking for? The historical precedent for um, how hard it is to bring jobs to these areas where they were coal-affected and he wants to bring in different energies – and sort of increasing the tax base and bringing businesses in. What's the history of that? How difficult has it been for people in the past, Republican or Democrat, if you know? Well, part of it was, and, and here's the, the Ridge is, is an interesting testament to that. The time was that because of the, uh, the mental health treatment of the other era, typically were large residential hospitals. And if you check in, many of them were in semi-rural areas, and they had lots of jobs for people that worked at them as both as practitioners medically and also in terms of um, support services. Uh, one of the ironies is that um, at the same time, we really shrunk our inpatient census for mental health and other allied uh, challenges. Our, in, our census of prisoners around the state has gone way up. So there's an ironic argument that we substituted human service jobs for what amounts of prison jobs or incarceration mm. jobs. Well, we've also probably have too many people in prison to begin with. Um, I don't know the answer to what Mr. Edwards said about that because I think that there's certainly opportunities in oil and gas extraction, but I think it's believed that in some respects the, the boom of fracking will never be replicated. The, the market will come back, but the, 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 mark, the market will not be what it was in the boom days a couple of years ago. Um, but I think if you think about the infrastructure needs of this area, I'm not mistaken, I'm not sure Murray City to this day has uh, sanitary sewers, right. for example. I mean, there are things that need doing around here, but it's a matter of someone having the vision to do it and also appropriating the money for that and as opposed to appropriating it for fighter bombers, frankly, or something like that. 
Right. And then that also comes with any type of extraction industry. There is that history of, like you said, it happens. And then once the the wells or whatever it is is depleted, once the resources are depleted, then you roll out right. and and you're back where you are and now the the land has suffered and the people will suffer as right. a result and so it becomes a um, a vicious maybe a long cycle because people say there are jobs but at the same time are they sustainable and so I had a question about um, circling back around to your earlier point about uh, voter, voting numbers and voter turnout and you were talking about how um, Hillary Clinton just didn't um, get as many folks to vote for her. Are we talking about folks that are, are diff- based on your sort of analysis and, and your um, expertise, are we talking about folks that just didn't show up to vote? Or are we talking about, or is there a factor? Because we've talked to several Republicans, and I've talked to several Republican voters who voted for Obama in 2008 and in 2012, and they're not voting for the Democratic Party this time around, and so how many? How much of that is folks crossing party lines that she didn't that or you know did that sort of dynamic of voting for Obama right. the first two times and then feelings change and feel progress was being made and so they're going to the, to the other party and how could have that did that do you think that plays a, a large factor or is sort of a statistically not an issue. Well, I think part of it is that uh, we tend to forget this because, of course, there was the uh, the succession of the first Bush to President Reagan. Uh, back-to-back presidencies by the people in the same party, separate people, are actually pretty unusual in our country. So that, that's one of the factors. The second factor is, without in any way denigrating Miss um, Clinton's qualifications, which I think we, everyone would agree are pretty manifest, um, we have had two Bushes and the presidency, and I think in the minds of some people, Having two people from the same family in the presidency, two more people, is probably not the world's greatest idea. The third thing is this, and I I worked in Mississippi in the 1970s and early 80s when the Clintons were still in Arkansas. Uh, With all due respect to everyone who either loves her or loathes her, it is incontestable that there's been close to a 30- or 35-year war on everything they've done, said, thought, or been and so the negative information that's out there about her, accurate or not, is pretty immense. And I think that overcoming that for anybody is really tough. You can see that even in local races. Sometimes someone says something about the appearance of something, and people think it's a fact. Um, the other thing is, and I have not looked at good numbers about this, I think there was a fall-off in enthusiasm among African-American voters, some of our bigger communities in the state. I don't know all the reasons for that. Um, I suspect that... Um, she didn't generate the kind of excitement President Obama generated, understandably so. I think there's something to the fact that um, her support of some of the crime bills or crime legislation that was kind of lock up and throw away the key was seen as inherently um, bad policy, and it is, I think, personally. Um, uh, but I also think there's a kind of, um, again, being that I'm from Northeast and an area that's been deindustrialized. I think it was kind of voter fatigue. People kept being promised things are going to get better, and they just don't. Um, one of the most striking facts that I think I know from memory, which isn't always a good way to do it, is that Ohio's median household income has consistently been less than that of the United States as a whole. And this is from memory, but Secretary of State John Houston once told me, and I think it's accurate information, that Ohio's per capita personal income has never matched the nation's since 1969 or 1970. 
And so we are in a period of stagnation in the state, and I think people have been told time and again things are going to change, things are going to get better, and they have not. And I think people want some substantial answers to that. And I think so. People might have said just – I also think, by the way, although I didn't – I wasn't entirely surprised Mrs. Clinton did not carry the state. I think some voters assumed that Mr. Trump would not win. I didn't think it was a critical thing to get out and vote. And I don't blame them. They, they weren't alone. Obviously, thousands of pollsters and reporters thought it was a, a, not going to happen. So that may have been part of it as well. And so what and then that so that still brings it back around to right the being promised things and we know jobs and economic and, uh, and making America you know great again yeah. <laughs> again depending on who you are pick your era um so what so looking forward and as as the president elect puts his cabinet together and puts his team together and um, and we have to wait to see who gets confirmed and all of those things. What does that mean or what can that mean for here? So we have Republican in the White House, uh, Republican Congress. Here in the state, um, we're Republican with uh, all the way th- all the way through right um, in terms of majority, um, Attorney General also. What's the trickle down, or what's the <laughs> what what right? What will it what will it look like here? Well, I think one thing that can happen is certainly true. Legislators are not all of them, but they're human too, and they like to be liked. And I think that I don't know Mr. Edwards personally, nor do I know um, uh, the new senator, uh, who apparently is a, something of an elusive figure. Mm-hmm. Um, but they know that one of the things that they uh, they need to do for their district to get reelected, and also just to be liked, frankly. That's why people in politics sometimes is to is to produce things for the district. Interestingly enough, I think having Republicans in Columbus speaking for Athens County in this immediate area, plus Megs and, and so forth, and having a Republican in the state Senate representing a, a chunk of the area, because Republicans do control state government, that may in fact bring us more than we otherwise would get. I can't say it's going to be uh, the horn of plenty, uh, but I think it probably would make for people saying, let's let's help this legislator out by making people down home think that he or she is really bringing home the bacon, to use a homely phrase. That's one thing about it. Second thing is that a lot of Republicans in Ohio government did not really support the president-elect. And so I think we should always never assume that Republicans or Democrats, for that matter, are monolithic people. They are all over the map and politically, philosophically, spiritually, and all the rest of it. Right. Uh, the third thing is that um, I think that... Nationally, we're going to see maybe some genuine rethinking of some fundamental institutions. Now, sometimes the rethinking is going to be scary and shouldn't be done. But other times, regardless of who's in the White House, who's in the governor's mansion, things need to be rethought. And one of the things that's in my mind a lot, and I didn't go through it when I was a college-age person, were the kinds of indebtedness that students are racking up to go to school. At the same time, we need better trained people more than ever to be ready for this change in the world economy and so forth. And I think there are people in government, including Republicans, who get that very sincerely and want to do things about it. And it may be, again, it may be that for all the idiosyncratic things that the president-elect may propose doing, there may be some rethinking fundamentally about some delivery systems of public services, which actually could be better for the ordinary person. I don't know that. For myself, one thing I'm concerned about, just as an observer, is that and this is especially in our region of Ohio, and for that matter in our county, 
is the future of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Medicaid expansion, which John Casey, to his credit, did against the opposition of many people in his own party, has helped lots and lots of Ohioans who are working people but could not really afford insurance or couldn't afford even to pay standard bills, have some security for their health care for the first time ever in their lives. And I don't know whether the so-called rethink or repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act is going to gut Medicaid expansion, but I can see a situation in which that could really be, if it happened, a terrible, terrible burden to countless people in our part of Ohio, all over the state, but especially in this part of the state. And because one of the interesting things, by the way, is that healthcare is a growth field in, in many counties. In many counties, the hospital is the biggest employer. And what's also forgotten is for all those that are maybe knee-jerky about welfare and so forth, is that there are lots and lots of hospitals that are on pretty thin edge financially, and Medicaid expansion helped bolster them for the future. So I am concerned about that and don't know how it'll play out. Um, longer term, universities, and they kind of started this here in other places, is to be have universities as catalysts for business development and job development. Uh, obviously, not everyone's going to be Chapel Hill and uh, the three, the tri Research Triangle Park and all that. But I think that to one extent, the university here and others can spur R&D outreach and so forth to a greater extent than has been done before. But again, keeping in mind the population patterns are kind of set for a while because this area has been a long-term, as Ohio has been a long-term kind of flatness economically and politically because of population flatness. And so, but we need to at least keep things where they are and then get better from there. And that's the great unknown right now, except again, representation in Columbus may in fact benefit us right now because of the fact that people will all be in the same party and not see this uh, neck of the woods as uh, one step removed from Berkeley or Oberlin, which are wonderful places, by the way, but not, not right. Ohio particularly in terms of the Republican State House perspective. What, what happens if um, the attempts to uh, re repeal and replace Obamacare negatively impact folks down here in terms of their health care? What politically, what does that what, – what do you see happening? Is that something that becomes untenable and is a problem, or is it something that perhaps well, I don't want it gets to rationalized away? It's a very good question. I don't want it to happen, but I can see it would really inflame people politically to make say we got somebody's got to change in Washington or Columbus if this happens. So in that respect, I think some thoughtful Republicans are going to consider whether they really want to do it that way. I'm not sure anyone has said that repairing or changing and replacing would entail removing expansion, but as you may know, as a whole core of Republican believers in Ohio think that it really is a bad thing, even though it's not, I don't think, I'm in my opinion. And if you have someone, and maybe someone in your family you know, who is lower income, but not low enough income to get on standard uh, original Medicaid, and he or she has a continuing medical challenge, he or she has a child, has a continuing medical challenge, Maybe he or she, or in this case, she has a, uh, a complicated uh, pregnancy emerging in, in her life. Uh, maybe he or she has uh, someone they're related to or they're in a relationship with that has serious medical problems, and the lack of expansion or the withdrawal of expansion would really essentially condemn them to a, a very bad circumstances. That would be a very strong motivator for intense political change, I think. I think. But again, we're in a period of interesting flux in our country right now, and I don't know. People sometimes surprise me that they're indifference to some things, and 
the focus on other things. So we can only hope that expansion continues, but if it doesn't, it's going to be, I think, kind of cataclysmic for people that are going to lose those benefits. And I think it might motivate them to really get politically active. If they're well enough to do that. Some of them aren't. They're, they're ill. They can't. But if they're well enough to do that, it, it could make a difference. Not for the party that's in my right, but for the out party. John Kasich, does he have a future in the – does he even want one? And it, it would appear that he doesn't even want one in the Trump administration. But um, maybe even bigger as the, as the GOP rolls along. I don't think he has one in the Trump administration. I think that would be uh, – uh, forgiveness is a wonderful thing, but I'm not sure it's <laughs> universal in politics. Um, uh, but uh, he's a young man. Well, he went, I first met him, or we all first met him in the 1970s. He was political from the first, last, and always. That's all he wanted to do and all he wanted to be, except for his period in the private sector. He also likes rock and roll a great deal, which is an interesting kind of... Uh-oh. <laughs> people don't always know that about him. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> Wait a minute. I, I'm the only <laughs> one... I'm the only one... <laughs> I'm the only one in Ohio that thinks this, I gather, but I, I still think that he might run for senator against Sherrod Brown in two years. I have no information to that effect, but the circumstances are and – and by the way, he would not be, quote, unquote, too old to run for president in, two, in 2020 if he wished to. Um, he would be in his later 60s, but he wouldn't be too old, obviously, than the incumbent or other than the president-elect. For that matter, Mrs. Clinton is now um, – But beyond that, I just don't know because he is uh, an independent thinker. He has uh, two uh, daughters, fraternal twins that are having to be college age. And um, uh, an empty nest to mean he'll have a little bit more, more time for he and his wife to do what they want to do. But I can't see him out of public life. That's what he's lived in for, since the 1970s. And um, I also think that there are lots and lots of Republicans – who are called pragmatic, which sometimes is considered a term of contempt, I don't think it should be, who think that's how he governs, and he has, I think. Um, it's uh, interesting to see how well he did, admittedly, against a fairly weak opponent the last time, and to unseat an incumbent governor is not an easy thing to do in any state, at least in Ohio. Um, I know he's, I think I know, he's thinking about legacy in Ohio, He's going to have some interesting ideas, I think, about um, technology and his uh, final budget. But I suspect that he's not going to leave the arena, and I just don't know how he's going to stay in the arena. But he will somehow because his contacts are vast. He was, after all, a committee chair in the U.S. House. Republicans ran it then. Um, there are few movers and shakers that don't know him. But he's an interesting kind of... I'd say, in some respects, a George Warnovich Republican, meaning he's not certainly as centrist as the late governor and senator and OU alum was, but he, uh, he's not an ideologue. And um, ideology is not what we need right now, I don't think. I think we need maybe some results. And I think people see concrete results. I think they've seen some in Ohio. But I suspect he may look at that Senate seat. He may not, but... Uh, He'd be a natural candidate for it. If the Trump administration is successful, what what does that look like in Ohio? That's a very good question. I, first of all, I don't know that it's how you define success. I mean that respectfully. Mm -hmm. um, 
I would define respect as uh, respect, success <laughs> rather, both. Right, it'd be great I, if there's some respect in the success. Yes, are not being as not being not being <laughs> not being at war, and uh, having a reasonably successful economy. Uh, my own view is that although, as people I work with, including OU graduate Kyle Connick, have pointed out. Ohio's demographics are not matching the nations as much as to Hispanic people. We do match the nations in many other ways. And Ohio still is a bellwether. I think that will matter to the White House. What's remarkable to me is the fact that um, Senator Portman will really have a lot to say about things in the state because he is, uh, was independent somewhat of Trump. And uh, he also was someone that actually got more votes when he ran last time than John Glenn ever got when he ran for Senate four times. That says to me that we have someone in the U.S. Senate who probably has some um, clout with the White House, who also knows trade agreements and so forth and so on, for better or for worse. And as to Ohio, I think a lot depends on who we elect as governor in 2018, because the governor can get along with or not get along with the president and the presidential administration. Um, what concerns me is there are two sides to the, the trade thing as far as it goes, and one of those things is a lot of jobs in Ohio do depend on trade, manufacturing jobs and some other ones. And if the president-elect is successful as he wants to be, I gather, in tearing up some of those agreements, um, we could be in for some dislocation in our state economically for a while, I think. So much of it depends, again, on baseline information about the unemployment rate, opportunities for people that are in depressed counties to find work or advance their standard of living and so forth. Um, what I'm more concerned about is the kind of deadlock in Washington that could happen. Certainly the Senecans remain deadlocked, and I'm not sure everyone in the, the president-elect's party is um, on the same page as he is on a lot of things. Um, but I think uh, it's impossible to know. I, I, I'm hesitant about it because he did go to places like Northeast Ohio and other places and say he would make changes, and places like Wilmington and Clinton County and he'd make changes. And I think I say this much, I think that the, the, the threshold for success in the eyes of many people in our country is pretty high because they've been led down the path before and things haven't gotten better for them. So I guess what I say is he has to produce pretty fast and he has to produce in ways that Ohioans can see as a really effective amelioration of their circumstances. But I'll leave it to the economists to figure out what that means. You, you touched upon a point earlier about how some of these things, in your opinion, are there's these cultural, spiritual, other these other sort of intangible dynamics at play that Im impact how voters will vote or who they vote for, right. and so we have this sort of talk about the 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 economic improvement of folks and the economy being something that f people are focused on, but it also feels that I, I could also see something where if the economic improvements don't necessarily manifest, if folks still feel that. President-elect Trump is um, making some sort of changes in, in areas that they feel more culturally or spiritually aligned with, that they will, you know, that will be the litmus test as opposed to economic improvements, tangible economic improvements. So let that go if they feel the, the country is taking more hardened positions in foreign policy, or et cetera, or against terrorism, et cetera. I think people tend to use mass communicators, and people tend to read headlines and summaries. And I think if he is, the headlines say that the president is, when he's sworn in, is appointing conservative judges who believe in family values, 
almost no one except he or she who happens to be a lawyer is going to actually look up what that means and what that, that nominee's record is. So to some extent, people are going to see that at least he is um, enunciating their values and his actions. Uh, I think the th- th- things go in tandem, particularly. I also think that um, uh, on the economic front, um, I don't know because it, it, he, it's a real challenge. I mean, how do you, just to use a, a, a homely but local example, how do you bring back coal when there's no demand in the market for it and so forth? I mean, you can't make the, you can't, like King Canute, you can't make the tide go away if you don't like it. And uh, I think that the kinds of appointees he makes to things like the courts will send a message of some kind to people who supported him on the social issues. Although, again, I don't think, I don't want to mean to say that's his dominant factor. I understand we always need to remember that people have, that their self-interest isn't always economic, as they define it. It's many other things. It's a sense of community, a sense of family, a sense of advancement, a sense of uh, security. Uh, in terms of personal safety and so forth. The other factors are important too, but those in combination. And in some respects, any president is really a spokesperson for the people who elected him, not so much a doer, but uh, an enunciator of their aspirations. And uh, I think he's pretty good at enunciation. I'm sure delivery is another matter though, until we see some further development on the budget front especially. Uh, I also think this, that if his tax program, as I understand it, according to this is from his critics, tends to favor the well-off at the expense of other people. And that message is, is that if that's accurate and if it's gotten out, that will certainly, I think, cut into his level of support on, uh, on the economic front. But again, it's, there's so many unknowns about this, this person. Uh, I mean, in a way, there aren't because you think you know him because of how he behaves on television and conducts himself in public. But at the same time... Um, presidency is uh, a lot different than uh, investing in a casino. And that's the one thing he kind of knows how to do besides real estate. So I don't know. And surely we can't take any more of the discourse that was maligning races and ethnicities. And that's true. I I want to believe wholeheartedly that that kind of, well, once upon a time, the coded, well, it wasn't coded, and then it was coded, we called it, you called it dog whistle uh, campaigning in politics, but now it was train whistle. I mean, you heard it loud and clear. Foghorn. Foghorn, (laughs) right? And so, um, and so we'll see if what he moves to do to fulfill that sentiment but I have to believe or want to believe or, I don't know, doesn't seem like the GOP can grow from that. Or maybe they can. They got him in the White House to some extent. They did. Of course, we tend to, we tend to forget that he didn't get the popular vote. Mrs. Clinton did. Correct. And um, we tend to forget also that, uh, that uh, we haven't yet seen what kinds of family heartbreak is going to happen because of deportations, which he does vow he's going to undertake. And I think that if that happens right away, that could be one of those things that really rocks the boat for his administration in general, because people are going to see, I think, some pretty heartbreaking things happen. Maybe people they even know as neighbors and friends or coworkers, families broken up and dispossessed because of the immigration laws and so forth. Um, on the other front, it's someone said the other day, some comment, someone commenting on this said, well, the popular wisdom that Republicans had to reach out to, for example, American people of Hispanic heritage isn't really true because this number, that number, and the other number. But 
you look at the big picture, uh, to use a totally unoriginal phrase, our country's demographic profile is changing so much that in the end, the sheer survival, endurance, and um, prosperity of non-Caucasian voters is going to, in effect, assure that at some time, not too far along, those voters, men and women, will make more decisions about their own selves and our country as a whole than they make now. And that inevitability will partly direct, I think, maybe some decision-making they make about the middle term of votes and candidates and office holders. Um, again, I, I think that um, this was not so much, I think, about Donald Trump winning, although he did win, I mean, electoral vote-wise, and carried Ohio. It's more about Democrats not making a case to have what amounts to years 9, 10, 11, and 12 of an administration, even though it would be a different administration. Uh, and I, I think with all due respect to the Democratic nominee, um, her manner, as gifted as she is, and that's incontestable, her manner and uh, personality are not those of her husband, who was a champion campaigner uh, with all kinds of audiences and all kinds of circumstances, and who seemed to be as resilient as a, as a rubber ball when he hit against anything. And um, I, I think that there are going to be people in the Republican Party, and even people of any party who are in Congress and federal agencies, that are going to call him out on things if he reverts to those despicable kinds of language about people and groups. Uh, will that will stop him? I don't know. But it may at least offer a witness to something that's wrong and that something that should change and something that should be stopped. And that may, in fact, protect uh, the Republican Party to some extent and some constituencies from, from losses. But again, right now, given the gerrymandered congressional seats they have in most states, uh, they're going to be a power in Washington and the U.S. House for a while. And uh, they may think they don't have to do much more than they've done up to now, just winning and getting in power. But there are lots and lots of things hanging fire. And uh, the trade deals are only part of them. Eastern Europe's another one. Obviously, the Islamic world is a third. And fourthly, the whole question of energy resources for our country and the pollution crisis of global warming. So I think on all those issues, he's got a very full plate. And I don't know whether he's going to be able to handle all those things. And obviously, he has the appointees that are really good. And some of the early evidence of that is, is mixed at best. Is there anything else that we missed or that you want to say or that we should keep in mind as we move forward in these next few weeks as government uh, positions, well, not positions, but as government leaders change? And Just that I hope you all do, and I know you will do what mass communicators do, and the mission in life is to get facts to people and hope that people, when you give them those facts, will, uh, will act in ways that uh, are uh, appropriate politically, socially, and so forth. Uh, the work mass communicators do right now, I would say is more important than ever. Well, thank you. Thank you, um, Thomas Suttis, for being here. Your thoughts and insights, uh, people can read yours at cleveland.com backslash opinion. Yes, ma'am. And um, we thank you for your time. My pleasure for being here. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. All right. When we come back, the amazing adventures of Chris Riddle.
Okay, so now, that time that we all love and look forward to, it's that time. The Amazing Adventures of Chris Riddle. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he's back. Yay. Hi, Chris. Hi. How's it going? It's going great. Great. You've been traveling, Chris. I have been traveling. I went to um, I went to Speedway. <laughs> <laughs> no, I went to uh, I went to New York City uh, for the weekend. Nice little getaway with my wife Carrie Shaw. Shout out Carrie. Yay. Shout out wives. And how was that? How was your tri- how was the trip? It was great. We went up there to see uh, the Brazilian artist Seu Jorge, who a lot of people don't know Seu Jorge, but he was in the movie The Life Aquatic. Oh. Kind of a Jacques Cousteau kind he, of movie. He played all the Dave. He was the one that played all the David Bowie. Yeah, he played, was his character, uh, uh, Pele dos Santos. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. But that's not his only thing. Like, right. he just played like acoustic guitar, playing Bowie songs, but singing them in Portuguese, which mm-hmm. they weren't ac- the actual Bowie lyrics. Right. If you know Portuguese. Oh wait. But okay, but we that's won't. A whole different I won't. Point. Okay, <laughs> I won't. I won't go. I won't go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> okay, but, but so so you went to go see this Brazilian artist. But yeah. You being right. Chris Riddle, that's not. Just what happens when you no, go no, to do one of thing, not. you know, especially like, in New York City. Right. So my wife is is kind of a social justice warrior, I guess. She heard that there was going to be a protest, a uh, Donald Trump protest, in Washington Square Park. So she's like, "Well, let's go down there, and then we'll go to the show in the evening." I'm like, "Yeah, okay, we can do that. You know, it's everyone's vacation. That's what she likes to do." So to find protests, she likes to protest. <laughs> okay. You know, so we get there, maybe two, three hundred demonstrators. People have some signs. I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, here we go. I thought it was going to be bigger. And so we're standing there, and someone says, okay, we're moving over this way, and we're going to meet with other people. So we meet with another group of, of demonstrators. So now the number goes from, like, two or 300 to maybe seven, 800. And then we're in this alley. Or not an alley. I guess it was wow. a street, but okay. kind of a narrow street. And there are more and more people there. And we're standing there, and probably there for 40 minutes. You know, and people are chanting, and you're hearing all the slogans, and you're seeing all these signs. I mean, great signs I saw. And then we start moving, and we get out on Fifth Avenue, and there are, there are 25,000 people there. Wow. I believe that's what the Times said. I could be wrong. But 25,000 people marching up Fifth Avenue. So they closed off Fifth Avenue. Sure. Took over the street and walked from there, like three miles up to uh, Trump Tower. It's all very peaceful. But the whole time, it seemed like, you know, this is a march with a purpose. It was very solid. Everyone, there was like a very positive energy to it. Mm-hmm. And then it sort of it got angry as we got closer to Trump Tower. <laughs> <laughs> the anger just started to build. That's right. But the whole time, you know, and there were police on the sidelines keeping everyone like within, we had like a third of, the, of Fifth Avenue. Okay. And so they had a little bit open. But as we're walking up, they have all the tour buses, like those double-decker buses. And there are tourists on the top and they're like, they're clapping and like they're waving their arms at us and, you know, just cheering everybody along. And along the way, there weren't very many pro-Trump supporters. But every once in a while, you'd see one or two, and usually it was like a middle-aged white guy with a Trump sign. You know, you would see that. There was there was maybe two or three, yeah, three young women that were Trump supporters that got into the into the crowd, and they were marching with us or with the, with the crowd, and it was you know, but it was all very peaceful. You know, they were like, "Yeah, Hillary for prison," mm. and people <laughs> like, "No." And they're like, yes, no one, you know, said there weren't any, like, super harsh words, I guess. Right. And another good thing about this, it was a great walking tour. 
there's the Empire yeah. State Building. Hey, uh, there's the uh, there's the library from Ghostbusters. But okay, but you love the Brazilian art. So I tell love, us about I that. love yeah. George. You know, most people in the U.S. know Sailor George from from this one role where he's wearing like this white outfit and a red cap, and he's singing David Bowie songs. Can you spell his name for me, please? It's S E U J E O R G E, Sailor George. But so he's beyond this. He's not just this acoustic artist, right? He plays like funk, like like Brazilian funk. He plays rock. He has like the sexiest version of. Like Michael Jackson songs, like these sexy versions of Michael Jackson covers you'll ever hear. Wow! And if you know the song "Everyone Loves the Sunshine," he's got a super sexy version of that. Okay. Like you're just like, all right. Like Carrie yeah. said, you know I'm a flight risk, and I'm like, yeah, we're both flight risks here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> just, I love Sailor George. You take like, the train, you take the train. bus, take or or a cab. So take the train. Train. So how was that experience? Well, it's a train, you know. <laughs> Yeah. It's been more exciting. I've had more exciting train rides in New York. Okay. This one was right. pretty like, you know, middle of the day on a Saturday. But after yeah. a big protest and all that, I just Yeah, well, a lot of people energy. stuck around because we had to leave because we were supposed to meet one of uh, Carrie's friends from Peace Corps over in Brooklyn at the Spear Hall. So we had to take off. Okay. Meanwhile, people were, were surrounding Trump, Trump Tower. They were like, well, they blocked this off. So now let's just surround the tower. So they, they laid siege to the tower. But we had to go to the Beer Hall. Were the police just standing, sort of, were they acting like this was something they'd seen almost the every day? The police were or? very professional, you know. Like, they stood on the sidelines for a long time. And then as the marchers moved up Fifth Avenue, they walked on the side to make sure everyone, like, stayed in the area they wanted them to stay. So instead of, like, spilling off onto the sidewalks, they kept everybody in the street. Mm. Right. It was organized yeah. In, yeah. in that way. Right. Yes. To keep the flow of traffic going, keep mm-hmm. people safe. Yeah. And allow people to express their, their exactly. right to protest. Yeah. So. And every once in a while, someone would get out and they would, I mean, they were always very, very professional asking people to, you know, get back in, in this area. So. Right. Because there was nothing against the police. There was just the mm-hmm. idea of them uh, walking through. And you have uh, videos and pictures of mm-hmm. your adventures. That's the one thing yeah. you, on Chris's uh, Snapchat. Not Snapchat. What is it? Instagram. Uh, Instagram. Instagram. So what's next in the amazing adventures of Chris Riddle? Uh What's going on this weekend? You almost shot a turkey. Oh. Well, you can't talk about it. Should I talk about the turkey thing? No. We'll, talk, we'll save that for later. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Chris almost oh. shot a turkey. With your hunting, yeah. Uh, yeah. new found hunting uh, yeah. license and all that, you almost shot a turkey? I almost shot a turkey. You <laughs> shot at a turkey? Yeah, I shot at a turkey. And I, you missed it? I missed it. Wild turkeys, because they can fly, can't yeah. they? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was out in the woods. I took the dog out with me, and I, I was just out squirrel hunting. and So the dog took off down. There's a creek at the end of our, our property, and so the dog went down across the creek and up the next hill. And then I hear all these turkeys, like there's just a commotion on the other side of the creek. And then I see two turkeys come flying down, the dog's chasing them. They both fly up into the sycamore tree. And one of them falls out of the sycamore tree, which is really embarrassing. Like, <laughs> falls 30 feet out of this tree. And I'm like, oh, you poor turkey. <laughs> you couldn't shoot that turkey? Well, no, you can't shoot turkeys in trees. Like, that's. Oh, see, I, I think had I taken the, the education course, right. which. Is that right? Do you know, Aaron? <laughs> what? Can you shoot a turkey out of a tree? Like legally shoot a turkey out of a tree. I, mean, I don't. I don't you think can. so. Yeah, I don't think you can. So you shot at. So you, so the turkey falls out of the tree and it comes up the hill. And but it you comes can't up, shoot the turkey that fell out of the tree. Well, it's back on the ground now. 
Right. But it's not on my property yet. But then it crosses over onto my property. There you go. I'm like, then it comes up the hill, level the shotgun, take a shot. Totally missed it. Oh. I did get a feather, though. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like a cartoon. So my, my six-year-old my six year old um, hears about this, and he, he comes home, and he's like, did you get the turkey? I'm like, no. He's like, Dad, <laughs> did you get the turkey? <laughs> the disappointment oh. of a child. It was. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Now we have to go to Kroger. Yeah. I was like, well, I'll try again. Okay. I'm sorry. So. We got to buy our turkey this year. Yeah. But you got some time still. Yeah. If you really wanted to. Yeah. 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 Get it. But the, you know, it's the first time that dog has come in handy. <laughs> oh. Like, it's a sheep herding dog. So when we had sheep, like, she herded a sheep into a pond. Oh. I was so confused. Two sheep. I lost two sheep to that dog. Oh, so maybe he's a turkey dog. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. I'm like, well, you just redeemed yourself. She looks so dog. proud. She's like, I think I did okay. <laughs> <laughs> right? I think I did. I was supposed to do it. Is this it? Is this right? <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, the answer to your question is if a turkey is roosted in a tree, you cannot shoot it. Oh. If it is unroosted, then it's fair game. So oh. then it gets murky and an ethical question of if you should shoot a turkey in a tree. Like, if it goes up midday to eat some berries or something, mm. then it's an ethical question if mm. it's roosted or not. But then what? if it's just trying to get away, then that's not roosted. It was just trying to roll out. Ethical question. Because it couldn't, ro- you couldn't roost. <laughs> you couldn't roost. You were just running. Yeah. Trying to. So I, I'm going to say. So it's like a foul. Your feet are planted or your feet moving. <laughs> right. It's in basketball. Right. It's like a travel yeah. or a, uh, a charge. A charge, exactly. Yeah. It's a blurred line between roosting and just running the hell what, away. What is roosting, okay. city boy? Like you're going, you're going to sleep. Chilling. Oh, okay. Oh, I yeah. thought it was like making a nest. That too, but yeah, like. But chilling. Right. Yeah. Was the turkey chilling in the tree? It didn't look like it was chilling. Right. It <laughs> just it, got there. When he, it fell he, out of the tree. <laughs> right. Couldn't, clearly couldn't have been chilling. Okay, well, Chris, you got to go. I've got to go. All right. Thanks for stopping by. Hey, it's always a pleasure. It's always fun to talk to you. I love it. We, until next time. See y'all later. And that does it for another episode of 457 SEO. Thanks for joining us. Our music is produced by Nathaniel McGuire. I ran into him the other day. (laughs) Really? I ran into him twice the other day. He works at the OUN now. Okay. Yeah, because he was in there. Lucy was helping. Lucy's my girlfriend. Um, My partner. Shout out. Um, I went to go see her, and there he was. And I looked at him, and I'm like, I didn't recognize him for like a half second. And then it clicked. I'm like, hey, dude we just started the podcast and we actually use your music he's like oh that's great i'll send more if you want so shouts out shout out thank you thank nathan for our music if you happen to go by the (laughs) o-u-n right exactly there you go because he's not getting rich off of this public media (laughs) y'all so thanks to nathan for our music i'm atish baidya i'm susan tebbin i'm aaron payne and i'm allison hunter <laughs> are we cutting that. out that the in and out part? Are we cutting? Are we keeping the O U in part? Yeah, I think so. I think we should. I think that adds a little bit. Of that. <laughs>
Sorry. I thought that was a chair. No. That's my stomach. That's your reaction to that?